Some um, some years ago, some years ago, third try. So some years ago, um, Margo and I traveled to my um, uh, where my in-laws live, and uh, we we had it was Thanksgiving, I believe, and uh, everybody was there. Margo, her two sisters, um, their their children, and son, the sons-in-law. Um, and her parents. So it was a big family gathering. And for some reason or another, and I'm not really sure how, I found myself sitting at the kids' table. We didn't have kids yet, so it was really kind of strange. Uh, Margot was in the other room with the big, with the big people. So, so the other two sons-in-law and my parents-in-law were in the other room. But I was there with my, my two sisters-in-law and their children. And I'm not, I'm not really complaining. It wasn't unpleasant. But it did strike me, how did I wind up here, you know? So, uh, there I was with the, um, with the, um, with the kids table. And I'm guessing many of you have had the experience of being at the kids table. Maybe it was at Thanksgiving or, uh, some other celebration where, where for whatever reason you weren't with the group that you thought you would be with. You were, you were with the other group. You were with the young people or, or maybe in some cases you were, you were stuck with the old people. But you were at that other table, the one for the, the kind of leftover people. Maybe it was a wedding reception where you're thinking to yourself, why am I at this table, right? Everybody else I know from college is over there. Or, you know, all the people from the neighborhood are over at that table. Why am I at this table? You know, what is it, you know, why why am I here? And and this is not a new thing. Um, the, the only thing today is people usually don't tell you why that is. In, in the olden days, it was very clear. Uh, in the Middle Ages, the, the nobility would sit at the high table. It was actually raised up above everybody else. And they sat at the high table in the front of the room. And then the, the commoners, you know, their servants and whatever else, they sat at long trestle tables. So if you've seen any of the Harry Potter movies, they still do that in the Harry Potter movies. There's the, the high table up in front and then long trestle tables for everybody else. That was just the way it was done. It was understood. They're special. They get the big table and we get the kids table. So that was the way people understood it. Um, we still have a little remnant of that uh, today in fundraisers. If you, if you give a lot of money, they put you at the table close to the speaker and if you kind of don't give any money then, or they're hoping you might give money, then they put you further out. So, so we still have, we still have some of these seating arrangements in our culture, but, but not to the degree they did in the first century. And, um, in our, in our reading today, Paul has taken what seems like a sudden turn. Up, up till now, he's been talking about other topics, but suddenly he starts talking about where people are sitting. And uh, the reason he's doing that is because it ties in with what he said before. And because as we've all experienced in those situations at weddings or, or uh, holidays or whatever, um, where you sit actually means something. It says something either about you or the people at the other table that you don't sit with them. So we, we know that sitting sitting has, has um, implications. So um, we have been... Um, we have been in this in this series of, of conversations looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. And today we're going to look at this question of seating arrangements and uh really what that what that is a um, stand in for, what that gets at is the bigger question, which is what does it take to be recognized as a member of God's people? What does it take to be recognized as a member of God's people? So um 
That's that's the the question we're going to wrestle with today. Um, and uh, we're we're coming in. This is the third third week. So if you weren't here before, um, you can you can catch up online. But let me just kind of give you a quick review. So. The, the idea of the gospel is this. What Paul has been talking about is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is good news. What is the good news? Well, it, the good news is that the world is going to get better. That, that, uh, if you look around and you, you see, uh, war and you see violence, you see chaos, you see hardship and sickness, um, then you say, well, the world kind of stinks, but the good news is the world is going to get better. That this age is passing away. This age with all these hardships is passing away. And a new age will come when, when, um, when God sets everything to right. So that's the basic idea. But what Paul, the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter said, is he said, the news is even better than that. It's not just that someday God will make everything better, but that God is already doing that. That there are two ages running in parallel right now. The, the, um, the age that's passing away is still kind of lumbering along, like like it's you know coasting to its end or something. It's it's cruising, but next to it is the age that Jesus has inaugurated with his death and resurrection. That new age is already here. The good news is that it's already here, and that we can be part of it. Jesus has made it possible for us to be part of this new age, and um, uh, because because I don't know about you, but you know I've read some science fiction in my life, but I have trouble imagining two two time tracks running alongside uh, another way that it's referred to in the in the gospel Jesus talks about the kingdom of God so you can think of the kingdom of God as that new age and then the the world the, the kingdom of the world is the the age that's passing away so Jesus gives us another way of looking at it and he says he says the kingdom of God is growing in secret it's like a a plant that's growing in the ground or like a yeast hidden in a batch of dough that the kingdom of God is there but People don't see it because because they see the kingdom of the world. So, so that's a different way of looking at it. Two different ways of looking at the same thing. The good news that Jesus has already begun to to transform the world into what God's intentions are for it. That this that the things we don't like in this world are passing away. So that raises the question. So so um, that is that is the um, the the good news that Paul uh, went around. Um, talking about, but Paul had a special commission. He wasn't just telling this to Jews. Paul was a Jew, but he had a commission to tell this to non-Jews. The apostle Peter had a commission to take this good news to to uh, Jews all across the Roman Empire, really all across the world, but but particularly across the Roman Empire, and that's what Peter did. Paul had a different commission. He got everybody else. So his his commission was to tell people who didn't know about the two ages and everything to tell them there there are two ages God is doing something history is going somewhere it's going to get better and it's already begun so that's the message Paul took to the gentile world to the non-Jew Jewish world and so so that raised the question because some of them said I like that you know where do I sign up and so they said I want to I want to I want to be part of that new age how can I become a Christian? And so Paul would baptize them and so forth. So the question then is, okay, now what? You've got somebody who is not a Jew, but who has become a Christian. Are they part of God's people? Because historically, this is the way God's people understood themselves, that there was everybody else. There was the Gentiles, everybody who is not part of God's people. And then there's Israel, which is defined by Torah. They they observe the Jewish law, and uh, that 
that that is not just a law, it's actually a boundary around a people. So they are observing the law, everybody else is not. So the question that came up, now that there are Christians who are not um, Israelites, who are not Jews, is what status do they have? Where where do they fit in this picture? And that's the question that Paul is talking about here in our lesson. Paul says that they fit right where they are. And other people came around and said, no, they have to become part of Israel. They have to fit within the boundary that has always defined the people of God. They have to, they have to uh, observe Torah. So that's, that's the picture. Um, uh, people said that Israel has observed Torah and Gentiles did whatever they felt like. They were idol worshipers. And they need to bring that into the new age. That's what Paul's critics said. And Paul said, no, in the new age, what defines God's people is faith. That that faith in what Christ has done is what defines the new age. So, so that's a lot of background, but, but this is where we're at. So Paul, so we're in the, we're in the, um, Eastern Hemisphere, obviously, and we're looking at the, the places that are mentioned are Galatia and Antioch. So, so, uh, we begin now in verse 11. It says, when Cephas came to Antioch, so Antioch right there up in the corner of the Mediterranean, and, and, uh, he came to Antioch. Paul is writing a letter to the people in Galatia saying, I know you've heard from people who said I was wrong. They're wrong. Let me give you an example of how I know they're wrong. When, when Cephas, Cephas is another name for Peter, and I'm, I know I'm going to mess that up. So when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So, because he was wrong. So I opposed, I opposed not just these random people that came to your town and told you I was wrong. I told Peter, the apostle Peter, I told him he was wrong. He had been eating with the Gentiles. Peter was doing it right. He was not uh, living within that boundary defined by Torah. He was no longer keeping kosher. He was no longer um, uh, avoiding people who were not Jews. He was living with it. He was he was interacting and eating with Gentiles. And the reason for that is Peter knew knew that Peter had had a whole experience of his own. You can read about it in Acts nine, ten, and eleven, where he where Peter begins kind of getting a little fuzzy on Torah um, in chapter nine. It says he stayed with, with a certain tanner named Simon. Now, a tanner is somebody who, by the nature of their work, they deal a lot with animal corpses. And so Peter's in a house by with a guy who almost certainly is not um, ritually clean. So that would mean that that ritual uncleanness would uh, affect Peter. And Peter doesn't seem concerned by it. So that's bad enough. But then in chapter 10, he goes and... Um, uh, goes into the house of a Roman, um, a Roman officer named Cornelius. And that is so scandalous to people that later on, when he went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. They accused him, you went into the home of the uncircumcised and ate with them. So they're saying, you are letting yourself not be defined by that, that, that Torah. You're, you're letting other things than that define who you are. And Peter explains, well, yeah, but God told me. God, I had a vision. God uh, gave me a vision and a voice from heaven said, never consider unclean what God has made pure. He says, I have a new understanding of, of what it takes to be a part of God's people now. And that's the situation when Peter first came to Antioch. He had been eating with the Gentiles. 
But certain people came from James, and when they came, he began to back out and separate himself because he was afraid of the people who promoted circumcision. So why was he afraid? I mean, this is Peter. He's one of the leaders of the church. Um, he had been afraid famously before, but since since the resurrection, Peter has not been characterized by fear. So what is he afraid of? Well, first of all, we don't really know what, what is going on. All we know is there's these people from James who are telling people that, that you have to live within the bounds of Torah. So were they, were they actually speaking with James's authority? Was this a message from James or is this people who have exceeded their own authority? They came up there, um, just to watch and observe and they started, you know, announcing things on behalf of James. Maybe James wasn't even involved. Maybe James is involved, but he hasn't had that Cornelius experience. He doesn't know where God is taking things. Uh, and maybe it's something else. This is something that's hard for us to, to understand culturally because, because in this country we have religious freedom. But in the Roman Empire, nobody had religious freedom. You know, if, if they'd had ID cards, it would have been written on their ID card. What, what is your religion? And the reason for that is because the vast majority of people were pagans. They, they had any number of gods. And one of the gods that they had to worship was the divine Caesar. You can imagine... Uh, imagine if we had in our country, uh, usually usually the divine Caesar wasn't the current Caesar, but his predecessor. So it was a way of saying, saying you know, if, if Tiberius is ruling right now, then you have to worship Augustus. If Augustus is ruling, you have to worship Julius, right? So he becomes divinized. He becomes the divine Caesar. And they said, look, this is no big deal. You're already a pagan. One more God won't kill you. And by the way, since we're talking about Caesar here, if you don't have one more God, that very well might kill you. That that this was a requirement. You had to offer sacrifice once a year, just a small sacrifice, but you had to do it once a year to show that you were under the authority, not just of some government, but the divine Caesar. So that was a rule across the empire, except for the Jews. What had happened about a 100 years earlier is Rome had conquered uh, the, the Holy Land, and they they um, they started demanding this of Jews, and the Jews fought against it. They fought hard, and they died, and then they would fight some more, and those Jews would die, and then the next batch of Jews would fight and die over and over again until the Romans got. Believe it or not, the Romans actually got tired of killing people. That's that's how many. That's how relentless the Jews were in fighting this idea that they had to um, offer a sacrifice to to the god, the, the god Caesar. And so they got a special carve-out. They were the one people in the Roman world who got an exemption. You don't have to worship the god. It was the one category of people that didn't. And it could be that as these people are showing up who are, who are saying that they're the people of God, the people of the Jewish God, but they're not acting like Jews, maybe they're just afraid, well, what happens if our carve-out Disappears. What happens if the Romans get confused and say, all right, you're all in the same category as everybody else. You have to start offering sacrifices. Maybe that's what the people from James are afraid of. We don't know. All we know is that they showed up and they said, Peter, you're doing it wrong. And Peter went along with him. And not only Peter, because Peter is so influential, the rest of the Jews also joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas got carried away with him in this hypocrisy. So... That's the situation. Peter's been eating at the big kid's table, or pardon me, at the little, I don't even, the the analogy breaks down. He's been eating with the Gentiles, 
And then he quits eating with the Gentiles. Paul says, when I saw this, that they weren't acting consistently with the gospel, with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of everyone, and just by the way, there's a lesson right there. This is the way we deal with things in the church. We deal with things privately with the individual, and if they don't change their mind, then we deal with it publicly. We don't make, you know, phone trees and, you know, gossip circles. We confront people publicly as Paul does. He says, I said to Cephas in front of everyone, if you, though you're a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you require the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are born Jews. We're not Gentile sinners. However, we know that a person isn't made right, uh, righteous by the works of the law, but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We ourselves believed in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus so that we could be made righteous by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because no one will be made righteous by the works of the law. So this is an intricate statement. It's all very, very um, uh, compact, and it would be nice if Paul spent a couple of pages unpacking this. But what, what I think our biggest problem in understanding this is we think of the law as something that, that tells people what they have to stop doing, right? Don't drive a hundred miles an hour. You know, that, that if you do this, you are breaking the law. You're a criminal. You're a bad person. You're putting other people at risk. Don't, don't, you know, rob banks. There are, there are important things at stake with the law. And Torah includes things like that. You know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, you know, all of the, the Ten Commandments, things like that. It does include some of that. But most of what is in Torah is, is nothing to do with that. It's not about right and wrong. It's about, um, it's about pure or impure. It's about whether you're part of God's people, the pure people, or if you're impure, if you're contaminated. And so it's used not just to define crime, but also to define boundaries. And so Paul says to Cephas in front of everyone, if you, though you're a Jew, live like a Gentile, you're no longer being bound by the law. You're, you're eating with the Gentiles, right? You have been doing this for some time. This is characteristic of you. You're not living by within the, the bounds of Torah. How can you require the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's saying that that the, the Torah was part of the, the, the age that is passing away. He, he says, um, what? He says um, that it, you're, you are claiming the, the status of someone who is part of the new age. And when you come across people who are Gentiles who are claiming that same status, you're saying, no, go back to the old age, become a Jew, and then we'll deal with what, whatever your status is in the new age. So he's saying, how can you require them to live that way? And the, the concern is that, is that people would say, um, is that, well, are you saying it's okay to sin? And maybe they're thinking, is it okay to sin by, you know, robbing banks or whatever? But maybe, but, but more likely they're thinking, eating with the Gentiles. Is it okay to sin by eating with Gentiles? And, and if you're telling me it is okay, if it's discovered that we ourselves are sinners, we're eating with Gentiles, while we're trying to be made righteous in Christ, we're, we're getting our righteousness not from observing Torah, but from being part of Christ. We're trying to be made righteous in Christ. We've given up trying to be righteous within the bounds of Torah. He says, then are you telling me that Christ is a servant of sin? Absolutely not. 
He says, if I rebuild the very things that I tore down, I show that I myself am breaking the law. He says that the 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 fellowship I had, um, I would tear down by, uh, I mean, it, it is here. And if I, if I break fellowship, then I'm, then I'm rebuilding that wall between, between myself and the Gentiles. And, and the reason for that, he says, he says, where is the sin coming from? Sin comes with Torah. If you think about it, if there's a boundary and the good people are on the inside or the, the pure people are on the inside, then by definition, the impure people are on the outside. You can't have Torah without, you can't have a boundary without having the distinction that it was there to create. The whole purpose of Torah was to define who God's people were. So he's saying, he's saying that I'm not promoting sin. I'm saying Torah exists to create two categories, sinful and not sinful. So he says, no, Christ is not creating sin. You're creating sin by rebuilding this boundary. So he says, I'm not part of that age. I died to the law, through the law, so that I could live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in my body, I live by faith, indeed, by the faithfulness of God's Son, who lived me and gave himself for me. He says, Torah is perfectly good. There's nothing wrong with Torah. Jesus himself said, said, um, not a jot or a tittle of the law will change until all has been accomplished. There's nothing wrong with Torah. But it's just that it no longer applies to me. I'm not part of that age. I have been crucified with Christ. I died to the law. I am part of the new age because I am found to be in Christ. So Torah is a tool for the age that is passing away. So, almost done. So he says, he says, um, again, he's imagining a question. Well, what? Okay, fine. Torah creates two categories, sinful and unsinful, pure and impure. He says, what if you can get it right? What if you can, what if you can actually observe Torah perfectly? What if you could observe Torah perfectly? He says, well, what purpose would you accomplish by doing that? Right? You want to be defined as part of God's people. But he says, I don't ignore the grace of God because if we become righteous through the law, then the Christ died for no purpose. Essentially, you're saying, thanks God, I'll do this without you. Right? I can do this just obeying the Torah. I don't need Christ. And then the question is, how can you be a member of God's people if you're telling God, I don't need you? You know, this doesn't make, he's saying, you can't do that. You, you either you either are a member of God's people and you're accepting what God gives you, or you're saying, I don't need you. I'll just get along without you. So that is the argument Paul Paul makes here. And we're not done with the letter yet, but but just to give you kind of the, the end of the story, what happens is Paul and Peter go back down to Jerusalem. They meet with James's people, and they have a big, big conference. And what comes out of it is that Peter speaks in favor of Paul's position. He says, yeah, the Gentiles can become Christians. They don't have to obey. They don't have to obey Torah when they do. James says the same thing. James says, "No, Gentiles can become Christians. They don't have to to um, sit at the small kids' table until they start obeying Torah." He says, "No, they don't have to submit to Torah because Torah is part of the age that's passing away." So the Jerusalem conference takes place. Everybody's happy, and no Christian has ever failed in this ever since. We've all lived 
happily ever after. No Christian has ever avoided another Christian and says, you're doing it wrong. No Christian has ever said, these people are not about the gospel, therefore I'm going to isolate myself from them. Nobody has ever done that, right? Well, of course, they they have. We have all the time. This week, okay, not like in living memory, but this past week, the Southern Baptist Church had a conference, and they they affirmed their traditional stance, which is that women cannot be pastors. So um, that that meant that they had to uh, expel or reaffirm the expulsion of a number of Baptist churches in this country, including Saddleback Church in Southern California, the church that used to be led by Rick Warren, one of the largest churches in the country. They expelled it over this issue. They said, you can't be part of our fellowship. That happened this week. Also this week, the Christian Reformed Church met in Michigan, and they said, we are going to affirm our traditional stance on human sexuality. And as a result, they will almost certainly have a church split. Judging from the Presbyterian Church, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, others who were at this same place earlier, they will almost certainly have church splits. In the Methodist Church, in the last three years, 5,500, 5,500 churches have left the denomination because they can't get along with the others. They're actually on the opposite side. They're leaving because of traditional sexuality as opposed to staying and insisting the other people leave. These things have all happened recently. Two, two of them this, this, um, this week and the others over the last several uh, months. Two, uh, almost 3,000 this year in the Methodist Church. There's a there's an evangelical pastor I like. His name is Francis Chan, and in his book, Until Unity, he says, unity has been viewed as a soft option for those who don't care about the truth. Right? If you really were on board, if you cared about Bible truth, then you'd realize it's time to separate from those losers. It's been viewed as a soft option for those who don't care about the truth. I urge you to let go of any of that mentality and simply tremble before a holy God, a God who wants unity. He says there's a strange thing. He says, if I take a biblical statement about sexual sexual behavior literally, I'm called a conservative. But if I take a biblical statement about avoiding disunity or pursuing oneness, literally, I'm called a liberal, cowardly and compromising. This is the problem. We have good reasons. Those those churches that have split, the... the, the, the um, uh, the Baptists that want to ordain women and the ones who don't, they've got strong positions, strongly held for, for reasons that are convincing to them. The same with the Christian Reformed Church, the same with the Methodists. It's not that these issues aren't important, but so is unity. Our world is characterized by disunity. I mean, sometimes it rises to the level of war. But often it's just I don't like those people. You remember the articles, should you date a Trump supporter? Or there was articles like that, you know, can you do that? You know, um, should you, should you, um, you know, can, can a Republican ever marry a Democrat? There's things like this. Our politics is divided, but our, our society is also divided on, on issues of race and sexuality and, and sex, sex itself and, um, and, uh, a class. 
There's all kinds of ways we divide our society. And Christians should be crossing those barriers, should be bringing the good news the way Paul and Barnabas did to people who are not in our team. But we can't even do it within the church. We can't even do it within the Christian world itself. We Instead, what do we do? We split with people we don't like. Jesus said, this is the thing that will let the world know you're my disciples. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. We can't go to the world and say we're all about unity and peace and harmony if we can't even go to our neighbors. So let's be like Paul. If there's a disagreement, let's get it out in the open and let's have that disagreement. But let's not break fellowship. Let's not banish them to the kiddie table. Let's not say, well, you can have fellowship light. Let's have real fellowship, even as we work on the hard issues. Let's be that kind of church for the good of the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Francis Chan is right. We worry about all kinds of things, about biblical correctness and about um, grace and mercy. But how often, Lord, do we ignore your desire for unity? Help us, Lord, to be bridge builders. Help us to continue to have fellowship with people who disagree with us, who are not like us, who have strong opinions for reasons that seem good to them. Help us to reach out to them, to put them at our table. And if, if, if need be, Lord, let us go sit at the kitty table ourselves. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.